Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, a weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Kevin, I want to begin the week. You took on a a project looking at a trend uh, that we've been following the last several years, and that has to do with the number of students who, after going on from high school, uh, need to take remedial courses almost as soon as they enter the post-secondary system. Uh, You had a chance to look at the numbers, look at some data, and then put this into larger context. But uh, what are the latest numbers telling us, and and what's the plan? Well, the numbers are... uh, are pretty significant, and they haven't changed a whole lot over the past few years. So what we found was that every fall, more than 2,500 new students arrive on college campuses not prepared to do college-level work. They need extra help in math and English. So what we're talking about is about 40% of new students, new college students, fall into that uh, category of needing some sort of remedial help. Now, 40% is a little bit of a deceptive figure because by no means is that across the board. When you look at a a college of Western Idaho, we're talking about more than two-thirds of students in 2016 needed some sort of remedial help. You look at University of Idaho and Boise State University, as you'd expect, those remedial numbers are a lot lower. I think for BSU, it's more in the 15% range. So very different needs at the institutions. And the reason I found this interesting, the reason I wanted to dig more into this, is the remediation courses uh, pose a lot of challenges for students as they go into the college system. The kids have to pay for these classes. They don't get college credit, but they do have to pay for them. And if students struggle to make the the jump from the remedial classes to the college level classes, they're they're going to have trouble, you know, staying uh, staying afloat in college, and they're going to have a difficult time getting their degree, uh, just you know, meeting the academic demands of of college. And there's also sort of a morale issue that uh, folks talk about with this. If students are kind of mired, for lack of a better word, mired in remedial classes that are not earning them credits, it's easier for students to become discouraged and to wonder if college is really for them in the first place. So, Especially when all that money is going out the door to, to pay for these courses and you're not, you're not seeing yourself move ahead, getting, accumulating more credits towards your graduation. It, or, or exactly, your and that's a concern that uh, college officials have. As I spoke to them, talking to them for this story, uh, that's one of the recurring themes that, you know, the more students are forced to take remediation, uh, the more difficult it is for them to make the transition academically and and persevere through the process of getting a degree. So what I want to do beyond looking at the numbers, because the numbers are fairly stagnant and and fairly static, I wanted to look at what uh, schools are doing to try to help students who are going into remediation. And a couple of themes emerged there. Um, All three of the community colleges have gone to what's uh, called a co-requisite program. So while a student is taking a remedial class, that student is also taking a college-level class at the same time, often with the same instructor. So they're they're getting extra help from that instructor. The instructor can kind of tailor the extra help that a student needs because, you know, instructor's working with the the student on a couple of different classes. Um, Student can take what they learn in a remediation class, in a remedial class, and apply it right away to college credit. 
they don't have any that they don't have time to forget these uh, forget the material they they can use it right away in the classroom and also uh, when I talked to uh, one of the officials at North Idaho College in Coeur d'Alene he said you know this kind of normalizes the process it lets kids know that you know it's okay to need extra help you're not alone here and we're not uh, you know we're connecting you with with instructors we're connecting you with other students so that's what's going on at the, the campus level, the co-requisite programs, uh, among other things. As I talk to the colleges, uh, College of Southern Idaho and Twin Falls, they do co-requisite, but what they've also done is kind of changed the, the timetable for students who need remedial classes. They used to uh, sometimes make students take remedial classes for multiple semesters, and they found that it was you know, that that wasn't working very well because of all the reasons that we talked yeah. about. So they've gotten away from that to try to get students working on their degrees at the same time that maybe they're getting remediation help. So that's what's happening in the short range and what's happening on the college campuses. Interesting, and what kind of got me uh, wanting to do this story was watching the Higher Education Task Force this summer uh, issued. 12 recommendations on trying to get more Idaho students to go to college and complete college really didn't address remediation directly. I, I think there's a real understanding, as I talked to Debbie Critchfield, the state board member, uh, there's an understanding that you can't talk about remediation without starting to talk about retention. The two are joined at the hip because if students succeed in remediation, they're more likely to stay in college. If they don't, um, if remediation doesn't work out for them, it's not very likely that they're going to stay in school and yeah. get a degree. So, so I think there's an understanding that this is a, an issue. And I think the task force is taking more of a long-term view of it. Let's uh, do some programs in the K-12 system that will help prepare students better and maybe get at the remediation problem somewhere down the road. Um, so we'll see. I, I thought it was an interesting sort of dichotomy between what the state uh, with well, between the task force taking more of a long view and what's happening uh, on the campus level with schools trying to help students right now. Yeah, an interesting report. I'd encourage folks to head over to idahoednews.org, find out a little bit more about it, break down the numbers a little bit. Um, you talk to some folks uh, at the campus level about their plans, and so a lot to dig into if you want to head over there. I think right now, as of Friday, it's parked near the at the very top of our homepage. So uh, real easy to find, but thanks for taking that one on, Kevin. And I know you'll continue uh, to follow higher ed and uh, post-secondary type completion issues right. real closely. Right, and forward. it goes to some bigger uh, project work that I'm trying to do here in the next few weeks, looking at at post-secondary completion and some of the programs that the state is trying to do uh, to address that. You worked, Clark, this week on a data dive that focused on something we've written about a lot since 2015, the career ladder. What you looked at is, okay, the money is going to these school districts, but there's no requirement that the districts use the career ladder and use it as a salary schedule and, and a plan to, to raise teacher pay. It's really up to districts to decide what to do. So what are districts doing? They're split, Kevin. Uh, that, that's the easy answer, and we'll get into some details uh, here in a second. But I partnered up with our data and policy analyst, uh, Randy Schrader. Uh, we went through uh, some school district compliance uh, reports, and we found a real even mix between school districts that are opting to pay uh, their teachers on the old model, which is called the salary schedule. Mm -hmm. And 
in real simple terms, and it's more complicated than this, but in real simple terms, you can think of the salary schedule as this big grid that rewarded teachers with extra pay based on the amount of education that they attained and the number of years of service that they accumulated uh, in the teaching profession. And really so, experience and education driven. Yeah. If you had a birthday or if you continued your education, you'd be looking at uh, getting a pay increase the next year under the salary schedule. The career ladder the legislature salary law that you mentioned was passed in 2015. That's a condensed uh, version. Uh, there were a couple of things that went into the career ladder. They wanted to bump up uh, beginning teacher salaries to help with the recruitment piece. Uh, but the rest of the career ladder is greatly condensed. And in simple terms, it rewards teachers for uh, basically for their performance and for student achievement. Uh, there is some allocation in there for continuing a, a, a your education, but it's basically performance and student achievement driven. And so that's how the money is calculated to go out to the school districts. Our analysis found uh, that there were 55 school districts and charters that have moved and adopted the career ladder salary model, uh, while 41 districts or charter schools continue to use the old salary schedule. And the reasons were varied. I talked to the human resources director, the finance director in the Idaho Falls School District, and she said, it's a major change to the way we pay for our schools. We took a year and we studied this with a committee of 16 different teachers, and we developed a recommendation to move to the career ladder. They felt that that was important because they felt it was important to tie the way the money is coming in to the way the money is going out. They said that that would be smoother in the long run and that there were fewer surprises. They also didn't want to incentivize things under the old salary schedule knowing that the state will not pay for those at the same way going forward. So for Idaho Falls, it made sense. It was smoother. It's more predictable on the, the business and management side of things. But I talked to the several teachers and I talked to the Idaho Education Association, and they did say the career ladder has made progress in terms of bumping up those initial salaries. But they are concerned for your veteran teachers, your high-performing teachers, your teachers that have been in the classroom a long time or have those advanced degrees. They're worried that those kind of teachers are getting left behind. And so they favor the old salary schedule. They said that that was predictable. They said you could really take charge of your own education and your own pay and uh, be rewarded under that way. So I talked to Carrie Overall, the president of the IEA, and she said, yeah, we are making progress with the career ladder, uh, but we're disappointed it doesn't do enough for our veteran teachers. And so for those reasons, um, many IEA members and the IEA itself favor the old salary schedule, and there are, you know, 41-some districts at least that we've identified uh, that have that model. And I, I talked to another teacher in the Teton School District, and uh, she's a Spanish teacher over there. And she said, it's been a little confusing for teachers. Uh, the salary schedule was predictable. You could literally print it out and put it on your desk and basically know what you would be looking at uh, the next year. She said it gets a little confusing under the career ladder. You may not know where you stand. You may not know uh, if you've, you know, uh, how to advance up and down the career ladder. You may not know what your district is going to do from year to year. And, and so she favored the salary schedule as well. So it's kind of divided. Um, and, and interesting, it seems like folks on either side of the decision are saying that they feel like they've gone with something they consider to be more predictable, whether it's the career ladder or the old salary schedule. 
predictability is a, a, at a premium, and depending on which side of the uh, debate you're on, you, you think you've gone with the more predictable model. That was definitely, thanks for picking up on that, Ken. That was definitely a theme with everybody um, that I talked to. They wanted something predictable. They didn't want to uh, surprise their staffs. They didn't want to confuse uh, people. And, and, and so uh, one of the factors uh, for the districts that went to the career ladder is they wanted to find out a way uh, to give everyone a raise, even if the mm-hmm. even if the state missed it, uh, some of the districts, Idaho Falls in particular, uh, Teton, uh, another example. When they did transition from the salary schedule to the career ladder, they kind of grandfathered in uh, some of those old steps and lanes year by year uh, to try to make it so that everybody would get kind of an equitable raise going forward, and then they drop out those support levels. Uh, each year further that they get into the transition so that it becomes more in line with the state plan. But yeah, predictability, uh, ease of understanding, avoiding surprises, those were all factors that were important to everybody on each side of the issue um, that I talked to. And the reason this decision matters, whichever way a, a district or charter goes, it comes down to recruitment and retention of teachers, which is a big challenge across the board. We, we know that Idaho's dealing with a teacher shortage, the career ladder is designed to put more money into the pay schedule, and if it's done as a salary schedule, it's supposed to try to help recruit newer teachers, but there's still this issue of retention, especially as teachers move their way through the salary schedule. Retention and morale, and, and those, Kevin, have been issues that we have encountered probably almost every day during every single legislative session since we've started working with Idaho Education News. Uh, Retention uh, of the best and brightest teachers and teacher morale are are big issues in the state. Uh, The law, the career ladder law, absolutely, I want to be clear, it does allow districts to negotiate salaries independently at the local level every year. Districts do not have to adopt the career ladder themselves. Absolutely within their rights to do this. They're absolutely within um, their rights to do this. But it touches on another big issue, uh, and that's teacher pay. Uh, We are ramping up our overall spending for teacher pay through the career ladder. Uh, We expect another year of that when the legislature convenes in 2018. But we're talking about basically the philosophy that school districts use uh, to pay out uh, the largest part of the public school budget, which is some $1.7 billion almost, salaries and benefits are the largest aspect yeah, of that budget. Of districts. And it, this comes down to the philosophy for how we spend that money and how we pay our teachers. So it is a big deal. And if you want to find out a little bit more about some people's specific experiences and what they're doing in, in a handful of districts, head over to Idaho Ed News, look for my report. And it's something we'll continue to follow uh, this legislative session, and when we get into the budget setting uh, process, we'll, we'll follow the plans for the career ladder, and then um, once the session gets in, we'll, we'll go back to the local level and, and, and take a look at uh, how the money is getting to the staff at the local level. So we'll continue to follow it, but uh, check that out on the website. Kevin, I want to go back and talk about a story that you covered. We're always looking at uh, how our students are doing in academic outcomes you had a chance to look at SAT scores this year, and you did something a little bit different. You compared Idaho's SAT scores to some of the other states that are also making the test widely available for all their students. What did you look at, and, and what are the latest numbers saying? Yeah, you know, when you look at the SAT scores and you try to draw comparisons between Idaho and other states, I mean, this is what the 538 uh, folks will talk about the, the good use of data and the bad use yeah. of data. It is very easy to use this data badly, <laughs> and it's uh, maybe uh, 
but there are ways to, I think, use it uh, more effectively. State-to-state -state comparisons are really tough to do because states have very different philosophies about uh, standardized tests, which, which test is the, the test of choice. Uh, that's almost a regional thing. I mean, there are some yeah. states where the ACT oh, yeah. is much more prevalent and some states where the SAT is more prevalent. So it's really difficult to draw a lot of comparisons, and it's really difficult to do a 50-state comparison, which I avoided doing in this story. I, I mention that Idaho's SAT scores, which are about a little bit above 1,000 on the 16-point scale, the 1,600 1, yeah. right? A perfect score is 1,600 points uh, between math and verbal. Idaho students were just a little bit north of 1,000. Um, looking at those numbers regionally compared to our neighboring states, they're lower. But you also have to look at the, the size of the sample. Mm -hmm. um, you look at a state like Utah where the ACT is prevalent and the SAT is really only taken by a, a small sample of students, like 3% of high school, high school students in their, their class of 17 took the SAT. Well, you know, think that through. Those 3% of students are likely uh, high achievers. They're likely college-bound. And not just college-bound. They may be likely to be looking at some pretty prestigious schools yeah. around the country. So it is the, um, you know, the cream of the crop in Utah. So their SAT scores are through the roof. And they should be if that's going to be your sample. Whereas Idaho, you've got 93% of students in the class of 2017 took the SAT. How come? Well, for a lot of students, it's free. Yeah. Um, Students in Idaho are required to take a college entrance exam in order to graduate high school, and the state makes the SAT available free of charge. Kids can take it during the school day in every April. So naturally, you've got a lot of students gravitating towards the SAT. So you've got 93% of Idaho students taking the SAT versus 3% just to the south of us in Utah. And the state pays about a million bucks a year yeah, this, to this offer is, that. Right, this isn't cheap. I mean, this is a, a fairly sizable investment that the state is making to try to get more kids to take the SAT and maybe apply for college. But when you do that, your test scores are going to be very different because your sample is going to include those high achievers who are definitely college-bound, it's going to include some kids who are maybe more in the middle, who are, you know, they may be going to college, they may be trying to decide on their plans. And it's going to include some kids who, quite frankly, are probably not going to go to college. It's not on their radar at all. Or, or may go to look at a career technical program as opposed to uh, a four-year college. You know, not to denigrate career technical. It's just kids are going to be making different choices. So you've got a different group of students taking the SAT in Idaho as opposed to some of our neighboring states. So what I did do... We're finally going to get to the good use of data, okay. or what I hope is good use of data. I tried to compare Idaho with other states that have similar SAT days, where you know students can take the SAT during the, the school day, and maybe they can take it for free. And there are a handful of states like that. And that's where we're kind of middle of the road. There are a few states in New England that had slightly higher SAT scores in, in, for the class of 17, but not by all that much. And Idaho actually had some scores that were higher than a couple of states, uh, Michigan and Delaware, that do the test statewide. District of Columbia uh, provides the SAT statewide, well, district-wide. So when you look at those numbers, when you do that, which I think is a lot more of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, Idaho's not that far away from uh, pure states. Um, when I talked to Linda Clark, a member of the state board, about these numbers, she said, you know, 
you look at Idaho compared to uh, a couple of these states in New England, the gap is about 20 points on the 1,600-point scale of the SAT. That's two questions, because each question is worth about 10 points. So not a big gap. So I think this is an interesting way to look at the SAT scores. It may become more interesting in time, because a couple more states are going to the statewide SAT model. So next year, we'll be able to add Colorado and Illinois to the mix of states that we can compare Idaho with. So I think roundabout way of saying that uh, this is complicated. It's easy to extrapolate badly about the data. I hope we have tried to extrapolate something useful out of the data. But but again, you know, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the, the segment about remediation, you know. State's trying a lot of different approaches to try to get more kids to go to college, stay in college, complete college. That's why you've got this million-dollar investment in SAT day. But with that, you know, it comes a very different um, cohort of students taking the test in Idaho. And, and Superintendent Ibarra has pointed out as much, uh, and she does take pains to point that out every time the numbers uh, come out. So I appreciate you looking uh, at the numbers in that way. If you want to see how it breaks down, if you want to look at the numbers yourself, Head on over to IdahoEdNews.org and, and check out the report. Mm-hmm. Speaking of our website, before I let everyone go, we had a big week this week, didn't we? Yeah, really. And I want to point out really busy week. a couple of stories that um, our multimedia and feature journalist Andrew Reed uh, pointed out this yeah. week. But some really good projects. Two uh, really Andrew good did. teacher profiles. They're, they were really nice profiles, both of them, um, and, and very different teachers in very different uh, settings. Uh, he profiled uh, Dwayne Krause, who is a math teacher at uh, Valley View Academy, an alternative school. Takes a real no-nonsense approach to trying to get students to, to do their work, and he's getting results um, by kind of laying down the law, telling kids, you know, you miss an assignment, you're not going to pass my class. He said he's probably the hardest teacher that a lot of these kids have ever had. Right. And it seems like they're embracing the challenge. Uh, right. It's a cool it's story. A it's a very interesting story. Stuff. I mean, it, it's a you know a very interesting, you know, hardline approach that he's taking, and he's getting results with it. Also a profile of Michelle Chavez, who's a teacher at Weezer High School, who has taken Holocaust literature and made it into... Um, a cause of her. She's taught this class at Weezer High School for 14 years. Um, she's been using online technology uh, to take this class and teach teach it in other high schools. It's a really cool feature. And, and you know, it's one of those stories. I mean, I'm reading this. And I'm like, I wish there was this kind of class when I was in high school. It sounds really powerful. And it sounds really, uh, really compelling. And you, you you read the story and you get a sense of her passion for teaching this subject and, and trying to instill life lessons with her kids about uh, respect, uh, understanding of of, uh, of history, and also understanding of uh, our differences and getting past our differences to, to you know, you know and embracing diversity. For sure. Uh, Good stuff. I'd I'd encourage you to head over to the site. Andrew did a great job this week. And if you want to make sure that you get all of these stories, we have a newsletter that we send out every Friday morning. So if you head to our homepage, idahoednews.org, scroll down about halfway, and on the right-hand side, uh, there's a little box where you can enter your email address and it says get Ed News in your inbox. And subscribe to our newsletter, and you'll get all of our top stories every week. Another way to find us uh, is through Twitter. Uh, follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter, and we will break and publish all of our stories 
that way uh, as well. But a big week, a lot of good stuff to go over. And uh, just looking ahead uh, to the weekend, non-education terms, Big weekend for U.S. soccer, Kevin. Uh, a rough up-and-down qualifying session, but have a chance to qualify uh, this weekend for the 2018 World Cup or not. Yeah, really, uh, yeah. As, as we speak, I'm sitting here, I'm wearing my U.S. Uh, soccer scarf from the last time the U.S. played uh, Panama, uh, which was in Seattle, which I had a chance to see, which they did win, and it would really kind of be nice if they won this one. They really kind of need the points to uh, qualify for... Next year's World Cup, so you've got that going on. You've got baseball playoffs all over the place. It's Football a, everywhere. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a busy, uh, it's a busy weekend of, uh, of not reading uh, spreadsheets and good <laughs> stuff. other stuff. Good stuff. Well, good luck to the, uh, the men's national team. Hopefully, by the time some of you guys are listening to this, hopefully they've already wrapped up World Cup qualification and will be getting ready to go to Russia next summer. But anyways, we had a lot of fun on Extra Credit. It's been a busy week. We expect another... Uh, several busy weeks leading up to the end of the year and the start of the legislative session. So stay with us, uh, follow our homepage, and stay with us each and every week on Fridays. We publish a new extra episode of Extra Credit. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.